الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على سيدنا وحبيبنا رسول الله وعلى آله ومن والاه اللهم افتح علينا حكمتك وانشر علينا رحمتك يا ذا الجلال والإكرام اللهم علمنا ما ينفعنا وانفعنا بما علمتنا وزدنا علما وقرب زدني علما اللهم لا علم لنا إلا ما علمتنا إنك أنت العليم الحكيم وصلي اللهم على سيدنا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه وسلم تسليما كثيرا ورع حوله ورع قوته إلا بالله العلي العظيم to I know yesterday obviously the nature of the topic and the sensitivity and also the relationship to the topic to the times that we're in will engender naturally a lot of thought and questions for some clarity for others some confusion that's just the nature of these problems as long as we're in the world there's going to be problems it's just the nature of the abode um, people this is an abode in many ways of hayra you know one of the the the, the meanings of ilah is to confuse like if you, if you think about god uh, you, you will get confused, which is why the Prophet prohibited thinking about the essence of God, but said, rather, think about the blessings, think about the attributes that manifest in the world. There is far more rahmah in the world than there is adab. And the proof of that is, according to Abu Hamad al-Ghazali, the majority of people do not consider suicide. And if the world was so intolerable, with, with uh, pain and severity. Like some people who are in chronic illnesses actually do want to be put to death. But the vast majority of people do not uh, want uh, to be put to death. They want to live, even in the most excruciating circumstances, because the gift of life is so great. And so anyway, I wanted to look uh, a little bit about uh, this from an Aqidah perspective. I mean, I thought what Sheikh Abdullah in Tanbih al-Maraji' Awakening to the reference points. Uh, and substantiating pragmatic jurisprudence or, uh, or reality-based fiqh, if you like, as opposed to fiction. Because there's a lot of fiction out there. So... Imam al-Tahawi, uh, he, was, he, was, uh, he was a brilliant uh, scholar because he, he's known for his aqidah, but he was actually one of the giants of the Hanafi madhab. His book on, on, uh, on the Hanafi madhab is considered really one of the foundational works. And he was originally a, a Shafi'i. His mother was a great faqiha in the Shafi'i madhab. She's actually called Umma Tahawi, and she, uh, she has an opinion in the Baba Zakat. She's actually quoted in many of the Shafi'i texts. So she was a mushtahida. Um, uh, his uncle was the great Imam al-Mazari, who, who, uh, Muzani, Afwan, Imam al-Muzani, who was, who was one of the great ulama. But he noticed that whenever he had problems, he would look into the Hanafi books. <laughs> So that got him curious, like, if the Shafi'i Madhab is enough for us, why is he dipping over into the 
the Hanafi books to see what they had to say about it. So he got very curious and he started studying the Hanafi madhab and became convinced and then uh, changed his madhab, which is, he's used as one of the proofs that it's permissible to change a madhab if you believe that it's a stronger madhab or it's easier for you. For instance, of, of all the madhabs, the one that you can learn the quickest is the Shafi'i madhab. It can be learned quicker than any other madhab. And, and that in and of itself is an encouragement, especially for more common people who want to learn uh, their fiqh. The Hanafi madhab, the usul is very sophisticated. And the Maliki madhab, the usul is very sophisticated. The benefit of the sophistication is when you're in sophisticated societies, they're actually, they're more amenable to those societies. So the Shafi'i madhab is a, a very... If you look at the places where it spread, it tended to spread in areas uh, like Indonesia, Malaysia, uh, East Africa, Yemen, in places where uh, the, the societies were actually quite simple. And in the areas where there were Shafi'is, uh, in sophisticated areas, they were tend to be ruled by Hanafis. Uh, so the Hanafi and the Maliki Madhab uh, spread in very complicated societies like Andalusia, and the great empires of Islam tended to be either Hanafi or Maliki. The Hanbali only recently has it ruled uh, in, in, uh, in uh, Arabia, but traditionally it was not a medhab. It was a medhab of scholars, in fact. Very few common people were ever Hanbalis. Uh, it tended to be a medhab of scholars. It's a hadith-based. Shafi'i is hadith-based. Uh, Hanbali is hadith-based. Malik and and uh, Abu Hanifa are hadith-based, but they are also, there's a, a very strong rationalistic uh, approach. So the, the naql and the aql uh, are, are strong. And that's not to say the Shafi'is didn't develop very sophisticated, because as, as time passed, they recognized some of the limitations, and so um, introduced things that enabled them to deal with complex situations. So um, Imam al-Tahawi, though, wrote this text, which is a very, I mean, I like what uh, Rowan Williams, who was the former Archbishop of Canterbury, said about this translation. Um, he said, the work is of value to others than Muslims for two reasons. It provides in 130 short paragraphs a clear presentation of core Muslim belief in a way that is not easily available by other means. So uh, he, says, he says that. Um, and secondly, it enables Christians who, want, uh, who have also developed and continue to use creedal formulations with the opportunity to see just where the Islamic understanding of God comes close to the Christian understanding. But the point is that in 130 pithy statements, you can really get to the essence of the dogma. And it's important to distinguish between faith and dogma. And I'm using dogma in a positive term. Um, people have heard me use that word before and think that I'm saying something derogatory because dogma has a negative uh, for, for many people. But dogma is not a negative term in theology. Dogma is simply... The creedal, it's, it's what we call aqidah as opposed to iman. And there's a difference between aqidah and iman. You can have perfectly sound aqidah and very little iman. You can even be an orientalist and know perfectly well the aqidah of the Muslims, but you don't believe it. 
And so aqidah and iman are different. And the focus on aqidah uh, is, is as opposed to iman, where, where you're always checking people's aqidah. Because you can have incredibly strong faith and your aqidah might have problems with it. So you need, it's good to correct that. But to denounce somebody as a mubtida or a disbeliever or something like that because of problems in their aqidah is, is very dangerous for Muslims to do that. Uh, it's, it's alienating because people have strong belief even if they have problems in their aqidah. So aqidah is very important and, and, and we don't underestimate it. But there's a lot of people that use it today as a kind of bludgeon, you know, as this hammer to smash other Muslims with. And, and that's a serious problem. But the study of aqidah for the ulama was a vast study. And, and many of our great scholars were great theologians, uh, like Taftazani, Abduddin al-Iji, um, Abu Bakr al-Baqallani, Imam al-Nawi, uh, Imam Abu Hamad al-Ghazali, Fakhruddin al-Razi. These were great theologians who thought deeply about God and wrote extraordinary works. Um, if you read the Maqasid, uh, Taftazani's uh, uh, great work, if you read um, the Mawaqif, uh, these are extraordinary um, testimonies to the genius of Islamic civilization. Um, but this is a, a, a simple creed. It can be learned relatively in a relatively short time. You know, people have kind of attacked me for saying you can learn Aqidah in five minutes. Um, but you know, and obviously that's called hyperbole. Uh, if people studied um, Balagha, they would understand he's obviously being hyperbolic, um, not hyperboling, but hy hyperbolic. Um, so, uh, but the point is, if you know Surat al-Ikhlas, you have a solid foundation for Aqidah. And there are Sahaba who became Muslim, went into battle, and died without sitting down and learning all these creedal formulations. So they had sound faith, despite the fact they might not have known that, for instance, the, the prophets are better than the angels. They might not have known that specific aqidah point, because it hadn't been pointed out to them. But uh, Surah Al-Ikhlas, if you say, قُلْ هُوَ اللَّهُ أَحَدٌ اللَّهُ الصَّمَدٌ لَمْ يَدِدْ وَلَمْ يُولَدْ وَلَمْ Surah Al-Ikhlas, Tanfi, Thamaniya, Ashya, Min Al-Kufri. It negates eight things from Kufr. It, it negates a ta'addud and takathur or ta'addud. So it, it negates that something is, there more than one of it, or it's a composite. So it negates for Allah ta'addud wa kathra. Allah is not, he doesn't have parts. He's infinite. He has no parts. And, and he's not more than one. So it, that first statement literally negates التعدد والكثرة. So you, if you think of God, you, you have to recognize he's one and he's, he doesn't have any parts. He's not a composite. To use a, a Christian Western theological term, 
from Aquinas, he would say he's simple as opposed to complex. In other words, that, and not simple, these are technical terms, so it doesn't mean simple like a simple person, no. Um, it means that he has no parts. That, that would be the term Western theologians use for it. And then when you say, Allahu Samad, right, it negates uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it negates from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, Qurhu uh, Allahu Samad, that he has any need, right, or aib, like he's not deficient, he doesn't need anything, right? He has no, no, no needs and no. Uh, so when you say, Allahu Samad, Everyone needs Allah, but Allah needs no one or no thing, right? So that negates that, you know, any, any aib for Allah. He, he, he's, he's not lacking. So it's, he has everything he needs and he's not deficient in anything. And then when you say, it negates illa wa ma'luliya. It negates cause and effect. He was not caused by anything, and he doesn't effect anything in a causative manner, because you can't separate a cause and effect. You see, so he doesn't, he, the way he brings things into existence is simply be and it is. It's not a cause and effect. He doesn't act on something in a cause and effect physics type of way. Lam yalid wa lam yulad. He doesn't bring anything into existence through illa and ma'luliya through cause and effect, and he doesn't, he's not brought into existence by anything. And when we say he's the first cause of things, you know, this is a term that came out of the Hellenistic tradition, it doesn't mean cause and effect, and this is why the philosophers, uh, Ibn Sina is accused of this, the philosophers from the Greeks argued that the universe, the cosmos, is coexistent with God. And the reason they said that is because Aristotle understood that cause and effect cannot be separated. And therefore, if God is the cause of the effect of the universe, you can't separate the two. So he's always existed with the universe. This was his understanding. So that, that's rejected in, in our tradition. We believe that the creation, like the Catholics, that it's ex nihilo, it comes out of nothing. Min al-adam il al-wujud. One of the things Sheikh Abdullah bin Bayya said, I know Sidi Faraz is dealing with a lot of this stuff, so my apologies to um, uh, the, the Aqidah class. I don't want to <laughs> step on any toes here. <laughs> but uh, the... Um, and then finally, لَمْ يَلِدْ وَلَمْ يُولَدْ وَلَمْ يَكُلَّهُ كُفْوَانَ أَحَدٍ It negates shabih وَالنَّظِيرٍ It negates... Any, anything that resembles God and any, uh, anything that is equivalent to God. This is, and the Quran uses these great deals of, uh, tawarid and tamanu', which negate also the idea of God having any, uh, anything equal to Him. So, in his aqidah, and this is the section I wanted to, um, think. He says, That We believe, you know, we consider congregational prayer behind any of the people of Qibla, both virtuous and sinful, to be valid. One of the things that you're not supposed to pray behind a fajr uh, 
you know, the, the ulama, I don't know about the other madhabs, but in the Maliki madhab, if he's called fasiqun bil jariha or fasiqun bil aqidah, then you're not supposed to pray behind him. I mean, some of the scholars that I knew, for instance, would not pray behind somebody if they didn't grow a beard um, because they consider that fisqun bil jariha. You know, that's more of a wara' position because there's a khilaf about the beard. It's weak, but it's there. Um, and so, uh, but they said if the ruler comes, you pray behind him, even if he's a bad profligate, even if he's a fajr, you pray behind him because the, just for the hurma of the, 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 the government, the sanctity that a government has and, and the, the obligation of obedience. So if you didn't pray behind him, it's like khuruj, be considered khuruj. So this is why he says this. And then he says, منهم, and, and we do the janazah prayer, the funeral prayer for anybody who died from amongst them. We don't consider any of them to be in paradise or hell. So in other words, ta'yeen al-najat or ta'yeen al-khulud fil-nar, this is the prerogative of God alone. And this is why you cannot say, unless Allah said he's in the hellfire, then we can't say that about anybody. Any person, whether they're Muslim or non-Muslim, you can't do that. Ta'yeen is haram in, in Islam because it's, it's God alone who has that judgment of what he knows the variables of life. He knows how to judge people. We can't, we can judge by the outward. So if somebody died a kafir, you know, then our deen says that the kuffar, those who reject God are in hell. But that specific person, we can't judge where he is. Because that's, only Allah can do that. He knows that person. He knows what happened to that person. And he, he judges them, not us. We're not judges in any ultimate sense. And that's why it's very dangerous, like the man in the hadith who said, Allah will never forgive you. The Prophet said he's brought before God with that man he said that to, who was a bad man. And he said, for, for, for assuming my role, in eternal judgment, then you're damned. And to show you I do whatever I want, I forgive him. Right? So that's a sound hadith. You know, so watch out about saying who's going to hell and who's not. And then he says, uh, As long as they pray, our qibla and eat, man akara dhabihatana wa salla ila qiblatina, Right? If they eat what we eat, the sacrifice, our meat, and if they pray our prayer, we don't, we don't, they're, they're from the Muslims. So he's saying, we don't testify, we do not specify anyone among them to be either in paradise or hell, we do not accuse any of them of disbelief, idolatry, or hypocrisy, as long as none of that manifests from them. And, and that would be the prerogative of, uh, the, uh, the, the, you know, the, the judge or something. So there are, there is apostasy in Islam, but you have to be very careful because if you're not an alim, you can't make that assessment. And, and people are brought before courts traditionally for apostasy. Um, we leave their, their inner states, we resign their inner states to Allah, the sublimely exalted. We do not consider violence or coercive power against anyone from the community of Muhammad. This is aqidah. This is actually what the Muslims believe. 
right? This is one of our earliest dogmatic texts, creedal texts of Aqidah. And it's, it's agreed upon by all the Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah. The, the Salafis use this text. There's some difference about how we interpret these meanings, but the, te- and that's why I translated it because it's, it is the agreed upon text of Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah. Nobody differs about the things in this text. There's some slight interpretive differences. The Ash'aris, there's four Masail in here that Ash'aris traditionally might have differed on, but the text is accepted. It's taught in, in, uh, in places where Salafi texts are taught. So, this is, وَلَا نَرَى عَلَىٰ أَحَدٍ مِنْ أُمَّةِ مُحَمَّدٍ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وسلم إِلَّا مَنْ وَجَبَ عَلَيْهِ السَّيْفِ Here's the problem. That's called مُسْتَثْنَى Right? The istithna. This is where everything happens. Who interprets إِلَّا مَنْ وَجَبَ عَلَيْهِ السَّيْفِ And this is where all the khilaf come from. So, the khawarij say, وَاجِبَ عَلَيْنَا أَنْ نَخْرُجْ عَلَيْهِمْ That's what the khawarij say. So that's why the Prophet said, When there's differences, go with the majority, the jama'ah, and what the ulama say. And that's not the masses. Imam Malik, if he said, People in our community do this, he meant the ulama, the scholars. So that this is not for the ammi. Oh, you say, well, the majority of people are pro going against the government. No. You have to look, what do the musnadun amongst the ulama? The ulama in the tradition, that this knowledge is carried in each generation by upright people. Who, what do they say? What do those ulama say? Because they will always exist in our ummah until the end. Those scholars will always exist. And you have to ask them what they say about this. Now, sometimes, to be fair, you will get people in that who will say, we should do this. And this is where the confusion comes. That's why fitna is called fitna. Because even the ulama get caught up in it. And this is why in times of fitna, some people chose to just back out. Some of the sahaba did not get involved in Muawiyah and Ali's conflict. Even though we are Shia to Ali. Right? We're with the Shia of Ali. Not the Rawafidah, right? But the Shia of Ali, that group was on the Haq. The people that stood by Ali, they were on the Haq. Both had Ishtihad, but the Shia of Ali, the Shia just mean the group, the, the supporters. It didn't, it became a political term later, but during that period, it just meant the group that was with Ali. Shia to Ali. And, and, and our ulama determined that they were rightly guided in that khilaf. The difference between us and the Rawafidah, who, who later are identified as the Shia, is that they rejected the, the ishtihad of Muawiyah and just threw him out of Islam and rejected Abu Bakr and Omar and that's rafd. It's to reject that. That's different from supporting Ali. And so that, that is the real first major fitna. So some of the, the ulama of the Sahaba, like Abdullah ibn Omar, some of them said, I'm not going to fight with Muslims. And they backed out. That is an ishtihad. Muawiyah's group made ishtihad, Amr ibn al-As. 
Ali made ishtihad. Who was right? Our ulama later, after the event, said Ali's ishtihad was the correct ishtihad. But they, they said that Muawiyah was making an ishtihad. Each one of them was trying to preserve. So this is the difference. And then he says, وَلَا نَرَى الْخُرُوجَ عَلَىٰ أَئِمَّتِنَا وَوُلَاتِ أُمُورِنَا وَإِنْ يَارُوا We do not accept any rebellion against our leaders or the administrators of our public affairs, even if they are oppressive. This is the aqidah of the Muslims. I mean, this is, this is the aqidah. So, what am I supposed to do with a statement like that? If you tell me we have to go out against the government and our salaf said, and they all agreed that this was rightly guided, they said, وَلَا نَرَى الْخُرُوجَ عَلَىٰ إِمَّتِنَا وَوُلَاتِ أُمُورِنَا وَإِنْ جَارُوا Even if they're oppressive, why did he put that in there? وَإِنْ جَارُوا He could have just said, وَلَا نَرَى الْخُرُوجَ عَلَىٰ إِمَّتِنَا وَوُلَاتِ أُمُورِنَا but he put in, وَإِنْ جَارُوا Because he knew people are going to come along and say, لَكَنْ هُمْ جَارُوا عَلَيْنَا لَا يَجُوزْ يَحِقُّ لَنَا أَنْ نَخْرُجُ عَلَيْهِمْ أَنْ نَخْرُجُ عَلَيْهِمْ لَا وَإِنْ جَارُوا وَإِنْ جَارُوا Even if they, and جَوْر is the worst thing. In fact, لَا يَسْتَقِيمَ الدَّوْلَةِ بِالْجَوْرِ I mean, our ulama said eventually جَوْر will end dynasties because it's adala. You know, Aristotle said a very interesting thing. He said, الْحُكُومَ مَبْنِيَةٌ عَلَىٰ عَدَالَةٌ وَالْعَدَالَةٌ مَبْنِيَةٌ عَلَىٰ جَيْشٍ قُوَّةٌ Right? You have to have, in order to establish justice, you have to have power to do it. وَالْجَيْشٍ مَبْنِيَةٌ عَلَىٰ التُجَارِ Right? Because you have to fund your... your uh, your, your army, and so you need taxes and you need to support, right? What to jar, ala suq. And the tujar have to have a marketplace for them to transact. Wa suq, ala adala. And the suq is based on justice. So it's a da'ira. You, justice is what maintains everything. It maintains the marketplace. It maintains the government, it maintains the soldiers, it maintains the tujar. Without justice, none of these, you'll always have khalal. And so this is why adala is so important in our religion. إِنَّ اللَّهَ يَأْمُرُ بِالْعَدِلِ وَالْإِحْسَانِ وَإِتَائِذِ الْقُرْبَى وَلَا نَرَى الْخُرُوجَ عَلَىٰ أَيْمَّتِنَا وَوُلَاتِ أُمُورِنَا وَإِنْجَارُ وَلَا نَدْعُوا عَلَىٰ أَحَدًا مِنْهُمْ وَلَا نَنْزَعُ يَدًا مِنْ طَاعَتِهِمْ we don't I mean I could interpret but I want to see because I spent a long time on this text translating it so I'd rather look at it right and uh, so we also do not pray for evil to befall any one of them or withdraw our allegiance from them because the yad here is isti'ara for our bay'ah or withdraw our allegiance from them we consider our civic duty to them concordant with our duty to Allah, the sublime and exalted, and legally binding on us, unless they command us to the, to the immoral. We pray for probity. We pray for probity, success, and welfare. So, when he says, we don't remove our allegiance from them. 
the ta'a. Now this gets back to what Shaykh Abdullah bin Bayyah said, there's ta'atul ihtimal and ta'atul imtithal. There is an obedience that is negative. It simply means that we bear their oppression. That's a negative obedience. Because, and the reason for that is not because we accept the oppression. It's because we know that going against them will lead to greater oppression. That's that. It's just irtikab khafadararain. That's the hukum. It's taking the lesser of two evils. By going against the government, we create much more oppression than bearing the, the, the problem. But then people say, well, how do we get rid of the oppression? Well, the first thing is, ma dhanamnahum. You know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, ma dhanamnahum. Walakin anfusum kanu yadhanimun. But they were oppressing themselves. So the first question, and this is in Martin Luther King's letter to, from a, from the Birmingham jail. If you look at that letter, it's a very interesting letter because one of the things he says, if we're going to challenge our oppressors, the first thing we have to do is look into ourselves and ask the question, do we have these negative qualities that we want them to get rid of? And if we do, we have to purify ourselves or else we have no moral capital. <laughs> and that that's tasawwuf that's the traditional <laughs> yeah that's it and this is where you see abu hamid abu hamid to me is such a interesting person in our history because abu hamid was living at a time when it was one of the great it's it's the greater seljuk uh, empire before the Anatolian. This this is the capital of the Seljuka, the Seljuks in in Anatolia. But the Seljuks begin in Central Asia, and and they remove the Ghaznavids, uh, which was another great dynasty. They solidify. They take over uh, Persia, Central Asia, Iraq. Uh, they have a capital in Baghdad. And 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 if you the pre-modern world was much more like principalities. It, you didn't have this kind of unified type of government. Every principality was almost an independent, but they had to send taxes to the central government. So it was more like a federation where you have, in America, you have states, and, then, and I apologize for using this. This is but it's the thing I'm most familiar with. I know Australia has states, and I could use, if I was Australian, I would use examples from Australia. Turkey has states. I mean, I would use other examples. But the one, so I know not everybody's from America, and, and uh, I know Americans tend to forget that there is other parts in the world. <laughs> but um, I'm just using what I'm familiar with. Uh, we have a federation, which, you know, you have, so you have Washington, which is the federal government, and then you have all these states. Each state has its own constitution. Each state has certain rights that it can do, but it has to send taxes to the federal government. This is, in a sense, with less, uh, you know, the Muslim world, because of the nature of communications, although they did have a pretty extraordinary system of pigeon carrier pigeons, so they were actually capable of communicating over large distances in relatively short periods of time. But... Generally, they were independent. Like in India, you had the Mughals and you, and you had independent states like Hyderabad, you know, and, 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 and uh, Bangalore and Kerala. These were independent states, but they were all under this basic uh, empire. 
And then the Ottomans were very similar. When the Ottomans controlled Iraq, they had three vilayats. They called them vilaya. They had three vilayat, vilayat or states. They had the Kurdish state, they had the Sunni state, and they had the Shia state. And they were separate because they were much more intelligent than modern people trying to stick everybody together and force them to live together with very different adat and taqalid, with different norms and things. So they actually administratively allowed each vilaya to run on its own. So the Kurds had their own administration, the Sunnis had their own administration, and the Shia had their own administration. So that system, Imam al-Ghazali was living at a time at the height of, of Islamic power, really. But despite that, there were all these problems. And this is the human condition. During his lifetime, Medic Shah, who was a great ruler, was afflicted by the, the botanists. These are the occultists. These, these are people that work within a religion to undermine the religion. At that time, it was, they were called Nizari Ismailis. These are the, the botany group of, and at their highest level, they didn't believe in morality. They thought morality was for the common people. It was a way of controlling the common people. Very similar to what's happening in our culture now is that the occultists are coming out openly allowing what was only done in, amongst the elite. Now they're letting the masses do these things. Because traditionally, religion was used by the elite to control the masses to control their mort morality, to control their wealth, to control uh, family structures, all of this. That's why traditionally the ruling elite was very concerned about these things. Now the law is do what thou wilt, do whatever you want. Uh, 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 the utilitarian harm principle of John Stuart Mill coming out of Jeremy Bentham's utilitarianism. John Stuart Mill said, in his book on freedom, that every group of people should be allowed to do whatever they want as long as they don't harm anybody else. This is the harm principle. That this really should be the determinant in society. If they're harming somebody else, then, then the government should stop them. But if they're not, even if they're harming themselves, the government should leave them alone because that's real freedom. This is harriya. That Philosophy has become the dominant philosophy in the West. It's still not the dominant philosophy in the Muslim world. Uh, Robert George, the brilliant uh, professor of law from Princeton, wrote a book called On Making Men Moral, which is the aspect of the government that, that there is a type of legislation to preserve the society. That there are things that we don't want people doing because it's harmful to society, and one of the great challenges of any society, whether it's Turkey or Egypt or Saudi Arabia or America, it doesn't matter. One of the great challenges is the relationship between the community and the individual. In many parts of the world, collectivism becomes the dominant mode, which the Marxist impulse was a collectivist impulse, where, where the individual loses his, 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 uh, his rights for the greater good. In the West, the individual rights are put over the community rights. So very often the community, you take your children to the grocery store and there's all these pornographic pictures on the covers of magazines because this is freedom. And the individual has a right to, to sell what they want and do what they want. So you go into a a, a convenience store and there, there, there are these pictures or a bus 
with naked men and women in a Calvin Klein commercial on a huge bus or in their underwear. And, and this is freedom. And so my child, who I'd like to protect, and also myself from these things, I don't have any right here because the community loses its right for the rights of individuals. These, these are the problems that every society has to grapple with. Islam tends to side on the side of the individual, but it gives great credence to the rights of the community. But Sheikh Abdullah bin Baya said, uh, he, he was at a, uh, a conference in Qatar, and the day before they had a philosopher in, 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 from America, and he had argued that individuality was the most important thing, individual rights. And there was a group of Muslim scholars there who was saying, no, 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 collective rights, you know, it's the community, and they went on and on. The next day when Sheikh Abdullah bin Bayya came, he asked uh, what they'd been talking about. And, 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 they, and, and they, they explained the debate. And, and the Sheikh said that he tended to side, actually shocking the other Muslims, that the Western approach was closer to the Islamic, that the rights of the individual are extremely important in the Islamic tradition. But the rights of the community are also considered, especially about morality. But the rights of the individual in Islam are very, very important. We have a hukuk, and those hukuk are not to be infringed upon. The right to be safe in your home is a, a human right that Islam has granted, and that's why the government can't come into your home. Like Omar, when he heard the men drinking, and he burst in, and, and he said, and they said, well, look at what you... If we're doing one haram, look how many harams you've done. And they counted out. Even the bad guys in Medina were fuqaha, right? <laughs> and so Omar had to admit, you know, that it was wrong what he did. They said, and then you're looking at this red stuff that we're drinking. How do you know it's not grape juice? Right? In the Ba'dabani Itham, some of So, you know. This is, this, this is our religion. It, it recognizes, it, it tries to find a balance between these two, but the individual right is over the right of the community. And this is why Abu Hanifa said to consider, you know, a thousand guilty people innocent is better than considering one innocent man guilty. And that's why the bar in Islamic law is so high for prosecution. It's very high. It's much higher than the Western bar. Most of these, um, these cases, uh, about, uh, you know, uh, the, these cases in, in the United States that are brought w would be thrown out in Islamic law. Because you need witnesses for a lot of things. It's very difficult to, to prove, uh, things in Islam. And the reason for that is because the individual has so many rights. I mean, the Ird is protected, your dignity. And this is why slander and libel in the West, we have horrible laws of slander and libel. You can say anything about anybody if they're a public figure. You can, you can say anything you want about a public figure. and nothing. But in Islam, if you say something about somebody and challenge the, their dignity, no, you're punished. If you accuse somebody of adultery and you don't have four witnesses of self-penetration, you're the one that's punished. Because it's so insidious. Once you accuse somebody of something, suspicion enters the minds of people. So somebody's accused of pedophilia. People, they're always going to have that question mark. 
You know, you accuse them of sexual harassment, that question mark, did he or didn't he? We believe you, Anita, for people that know that issue. Again, apologies to the Australians and others. I'm sure you have your cases like that too. But. So, uh, well, and then, والحج والجهاد فارباني ماضياني معقول الأمر من أئمة المسلمين برهم وفاجرهم إلى قيام الساعة لا يقرهما شيء ولا ينقضهما. So the the uh, the Hajj and Jihad are perpetual obligations that are carried out under legitimate Muslim rulers, irrespective of their personal probity, whether they're good or bad, until the end of time. Nothing can nullify or rescind them. Now. What is jihad? And that's where the question comes. He mentions hajj and jihad together because hajj is the jihad of women. Because Aisha asked the Prophet, do women have jihad? He said, yes, and there's no fighting in it. It's called hajj. So the hajj and jihad are together. And also the imam has to establish the hajj, make sure that the pilgrims are protected, that they're given water, food if they need it, things like that. So jihad, ta'riful jihad, the definition of jihad, Right is 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 bedr al-juhud. Right, al-din. It's expending your energies to defend the religion. Right. So jihad is is a. It means many things. And and uh, Ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah said that kullu qurbatan jihad. Every act of devotion that gets you towards Allah is a type of jihad. Right? Al-Mujahidun man jahada hawahu. The Prophet said, the jihad, the mujahid is the one who struggles against his own passions, his own lower desires. وَالَّذِينَ جَاهَدُوا فِينَا لَا نَهْدِيَنَّهُمْ سُبَرَنَا وَإِنَّ اللَّهُ مَعَ الْمُحْسِنِينَ Those who do jihad for our sake, this is in Surah Al-Ankabut, this verse was revealed before the, the, the verses permitting qital. كُتِبَ عَلَيْكُمْ الْقِتَالِ Fighting has been decreed for you, prescribed for you. Those verses came before, right? And then, وَجَاهِدْهُمْ بِهِ بِالْقُرْآنِ So there's jihad al-lisan, there's the, the, the jihad of the tongue. These are all forms of jihad. So, Shaykh Abdullah said in the early period there was a khilaf about jihad al-talab, right? An offensive jihad and a defensive jihad. Some of the ulama said jihad is only defensive. Why? Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَلَا تَعْتَدُوا إِنَّ اللَّهِ لَا يُحِبِّ الْمُعْتَدِينَ Don't be aggressors. Allah doesn't love the aggressors. His love is not fickle like some people's. Right? You have fickle love. Right? Her love was fickle. Like one day she, lo- she loves me, she loves me not. That's fickle love. Right? Allah's love does not لا لا يتغير حبه لا يتغير فإذا قال لا يحب المعتدين إلى أن تقوم الساعة he doesn't love aggression Allah does not love aggression and therefore they said if you aggress against somebody now some of the ulama argued that it really is defensive even when it's offensive because what you're doing is preemptive the Arabs used to say, Arom, إِذَا لَا تُغْزَى تَغْزُوا If you, if the Byzantines, if you don't first attack them, eventually they're going to attack you. Preemptive war is a very dangerous doctrine. This was the American doctrine of the neocons, this idea of preemptive war. Um, 
Hitler believed in preemptive war. Uh, Eisenhower condemned it, saying that it, you know, that once you open that door, it's the door for just uh, oppression and expansion. But the Muslims differed. But they understood, nonetheless, it was always to promote good, to create freer societies where there was freedom of religion, including allowing people to be disbelievers and to protect them from the aggression of others. So, like this Pax Americana, this idea that some uh, neoconservatives have of creating a global, peaceful civilization by having these, uh, you know, these powers that stop evildoers. The Muslims had very similar idea, right? They had this idea that we should make the world safe for religion, all religion. Because religious persecution is the worst type of persecution in the Quran. To be persecuted for what you believe, there should be freedom of thought. This was the idea. Even the atheists could live in the Muslim society, and there were many atheists that lived to ripe old ages in, in, in the Islamic civilization. So the Muslims were open to these things. But what, what uh, Sheikh Abdullah said, this debate is over in the modern world. To say that there's offensive jihad, that you can aggressively attack another country, is an act of insanity. And he said, نَحْكُمُ عَلَيْهِمْ بِالْجُنُونَ مَنْ قَالَ الْآنِ بِجِهَادَ الطَّرَبِ هَذَا الْجُنُونَ Because الْأَسْلِحَ مُدَمِّرَ These weapons of mass destruction now that we have, it makes it an act of madness to do that. And so he, he's totally opposed to it in that way. So, uh, in conclusion, uh, on this section, I wanted to um, So one of the things that the sheikh is very concerned about is uh, yeah. He said مسرحة وتحرم مخارفته وما هي حقيقتها واستحقاقاتها أم هناك طاعة أخرى من أجل سد ذريعة الفتنة والاحتراب لتقدير الإسلام لدماء الناس أم أنها طاعة سلبية طاعة انكفاف وليس طاعة امتثال أم أن الأمر يرجع إلى الوضع الزماني ليحقق فيه المناط من خلال الوثائق الدستورية في هذا الزمان الخروج هل ما زال مخالف مخالفة الحاكم لمنع حق أو لخلعه 
الباغية طائفة خالفة الإيمان والذي يظهر لي والعلم عند العليم الحكيم بعد مراجعة الأحاديث الآمرة بالطاعة الناهية عن نزع اليد منها وترك المقيدة مقيدة بالمعروف أو مقيدة بالمعروف الناهية عن الطاعة في المنكر أن الطاعة لها معنيان يدل عليهما السياق المعنى الأول الطاعة التي تعني عدم الخروج عن الحاكم وعدم استهداف النظام العام وهذه هي التي لا يجوز الخروج عليها إلا بعد خروج الإمام خروجا لا شك فيه ولا ريب من الإسلام وهي طاعة الجمهور التي تعني لزوم الجماعة وهي طاعة السلبية أو طاعة الانكفاف وعدم الاعتراض ومعنى الثاني الطاعة شخصية للقيام بعمل تجب إذا كان مشروعا ولا تجوز إذا كان غير جائز ولكنه لا يسمح بالخروج وبعبارة أخرى فإن طاعة طاعتان طاعة احتمال وطاعة امتثال ولا ينافي ما ذكر في الطاعة القاعدة الشرعية المعروفة وهي أن تصرف الإمام على الرعية منوط بالمصلحة وأصلها للشافعي كما يقول السيوطي في الأشباه وقد ذكرها العز بن عبد السلام وتلميذه القرافي بن نجيم وغيرهم وهي مستنبطة من الكتاب ولا تقرر مع اليتيم إلا بالتي هي أحسن ومن السنة ففي الصحيحين ما من عبد استرعاه والله رعية فلم يحطها بنصيحة إلا لم يجد رائحة الجنة لكن من يحدد المصلحة ويحقق المناط الظاهر من النصوص أن الجهة الولائية هي المرجحة المرجحة لأن المختلف فيه بإنضاء الإمام يصير متفقا عليه كما يقول السرخسي في شرح السير الكبير So this is very important He said that one of the things that the fuqaha differed on about the nature of obedience then what is obedience to, to the ruler is imtidhar uh, al So is it that we have to obey the sharia when the ruler tells us to obey? And he calls this imtithal al-qanun, like obeying the law. So you have laws and you should obey. Is that what it means? Or is the ta'a the person of the ruler? So do, do, is it the rule of law or is it the rule of uh, the ruler? And then is this obedience in in tujibu amru fil is that it is is it necessary in permissible things if they're maslaha if they're beneficial and and is it prohibited to go against that these are questions he's asking and what's its reality what's its haqiqa what's the reality of it and then what are what are the consequences of that reality what follows from it what what are the things owing to it or is there a different type of obedience which is Sadda dhari'a, it's to protect, it's, it's cutting off pretext of fitna and, and civil war, ihtirab, civil wars, and especially given the value that Islam holds for the shedding of blood. Blood is very, very valuable in the Islamic uh, tradition. Or is it a negative type of obedience? In other words, that we simply don't oppose the ruler, and it's not... A, uh, a positive obedience that we have to do what he says. In other words, we don't go against the ruler. 
Or does it, is it look at the time and the place? So, you know, the, the Usuli scholars, these scholars of Islamic law, have different types of approach to situation. So they have, you know, تخريج, تنقيح, and تحقيق. The manat is the, 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 the contingency of taklif. It's where, it's where you're responsible. So for instance, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has two discourses. He has what's called khitabu takrif and khitabu al-wada'. Khitabu takrif is, for instance, aqimu salah. Allah says, establish a prayer. Al-amr yadulu ala al-wujub. When Allah commands you to do something, it means obligation, unless there's an indication that it's not. Like kulu wa sharabu. That's imperative. Eat and drink. Obviously, when you're hungry, Eat, eat, it's mubah, right? Eat and drink. It's for nadab. Don't do it to excess. So it's mandub, not to eat uh, or drink to, it's makru, to do it excessively. If it's excessive to the point of harm, it becomes haram. So if a doctor, if you have diabetes, the doctor tells you don't eat sweets, that's ta'ayyana alik. Because sometimes a legal ruling applies to ashkhas, but not to the society. These are points of difference. So the khitab al-taklif, which is God's, the divine discourse to individuals. So if you ask me, if, if you ask me, is the prayer an obligation? Your average Muslim is going to say, absolutely, it's wajib. If you, if you ask an usuli scholar, is the prayer an obligation? They'll say, that depends. Are you a Muslim? Uh, have you reached maturity? Are you menstruating? Uh, do you have access to water or earth? So they're going to look at it differently, right? Because this is called taklif, this is called khitab al-wada'. So the taklif says you have to pray. The wada determines the situation of whether you have to pray or not. This is the distinction. Wada is three things. Asbab, shuroop, and mawani'. So it's got the asbab. So the point the sun reaches 90 degrees, according to Ibn Arafah in his hudud, one degree away from 90 degrees. So the sun moves one degree away. That's four minutes it takes to move. One degree away. At the point it reaches 91 degrees, dhuhr has become an obligation. It's a sabab for wujub salat al-dhuhr. That's the sabab. So now, before dhuhr, your taklif al said, you can't pray dhuhr. There was a mana. There was a preventative. It was saying it's not dhuhr time, therefore you can't pray dhuhr. So if you pray dhuhr when it was at 89 degrees, your prayer is invalid. Because even though the khitabu taklif, the discourse of obligation says dhuhr is wajib, it has conditions. It has uh, asbab. It has shuroot. And it has mawana. One of the shuroot is that you have to be tahir. Uh, that's a condition. So the mana is that you, you don't have tahara. So I can't pray because I'm not in wudu. Or I'm not in ghusl. So that's wada. That's your situation. Every legal ruling has a khitab taklif and a khitab wada. Shaykh Abdullah bin Bayyah says that one of the greatest crises in our ummah is splitting these two. So people say jihad is wajib. Tayyib. But it has asbab. It has shuroop. And it has mawani. 
So if you're going to kill yourself and, and, and it's suicidal, jihad is haram. Because Allah prohibits suicide. لا تلقوا بأيديكم إلى التهلكة لا تقتلوا أنفسكم إن الله كان بكم رحيما ففي هذا في هذا الوضع لا يجوز يحرم عليكم الجهاد. If 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 you if you have somebody conquers you and they have nuclear weapons and you don't have nuclear weapons سقط الجهاد because they'll annihilate you and Allah is not telling you to get annihilated. He's saying convert them to Islam and then they become weapons for the Muslims. <laughs> At least try to convert them. That's what the Muslims did with the Mongols. The Mongols invaded and they said, you know what, they, they actually, if you read T.B. Arnold's book on uh, pre, the preaching of Islam, he said that the ulama got together and said, you know what, we can't defeat these people. They're too powerful uh, militarily. The Muslims have gotten weak. You know, we're supposed to prepare because we believe in deterrence. Look at deterrent. Deterrent, you know, they think irhab is terrorism. No, the irhab here is deterrent. What does deterrent mean in English? De terere, out of fear. A deterrent prevents people from attacking you because they're afraid of you. That's what the Muslims want. They don't want to terrorize others. They want others to be afraid of terrorizing them. And now we've switched it. We've made Islam look like terrorism, when Islam should look like a deterrent. That's the irhab of Islam. It's to frighten people from attacking. Be strong. Like, uh, it's a very American idea. Teddy Roosevelt, walk tall and carry a big stick, so people don't mess with you. That's the idea. It's not to go around picking on people or bullying people, like some countries do, because they have big sticks. No, it's to have a big stick so other countries don't terrorize you. So this, this is what Sheikh Abdullah is saying, that we have to restore the integrity of the khitab al-wada and the khitab al-takrib, to bring them back together, to recognize when the shuroop are there, when the asbab are there, when the mawani' are there. There are mawani' to jihad. The Prophet ﷺ, he sent... People, right? He went out, his last ghazwa, right? When he went out to Tabuk, and he realized, he because there were rumors that they were going to attack the Muslims. So he got an army together, he went out, we're going to defend ourselves, jihad, defend. When he got there, he realized, they're not trying to attack us, no fighting. He went back home. If they don't want to attack you, he said, you know, the Turks leave them alone as long as they leave you alone. Because he knew Ul al-Bas, right? Sayyidina Omar. He didn't, Sayyidina Omar didn't want to fight the Turks. Because they were powerful people. Don't mess with the Turks. Right? But if they mess with you, you have to mess with them. That's Malcolm. You know, Malcolm used to say, you know, our religion is a, is that good old time religion. You know? Treat people with respect, but if they lay your hand, if they lay their hand on you, send them to the cemetery. Right? That, that's Islam. And, and if you can't send them to the cemetery, try to convert them to your religion. <laughs> you know, or call them to their highest principles, the better angels of their nature. 
Don't you believe in equality? Don't you believe in democracy? Don't you believe in the rights of people to self-determination? Don't you believe all these things? Why are you forcing your laws on us? Why are you telling us your culture is the only culture? I mean, this is one of the arrogances of the West. You see, the West, when they were Christians, they wanted everybody to be Christian. Now they don't, they don't really believe in Christianity, so they want everybody to be capitalists and consumers. Um, they used to be against homosexuality, and they would punish homosexuality wherever they went. The Muslims, oddly enough, were far more tolerant of uh, you know, transvestites. There's a whole tradition of transvestites in, in the Muslim world. There was a period where you know, one of the caliph's mothers used to dress up the girls as boys. In the, you know, I mean, these things are, these are, this is just human history. If you read human history, I, one of the things that shocked me when I was studying Arabic literature was what were called the ghulamiyat, you know, all of these uh, hebophilic uh, poetry, which was homoerotic poetry. I thought it was very weird, you know. But homosexuality has been around for a long, long time, but nobody permitted it. So you had, you know, in the Muslim world, you had these muhannathun that, that uh, go to weddings. They still do it in India and Pakistan and Mauritania. Even in Mauritania, you've got these, you know, they dress up like women and they talk funny and people laugh. They're like comedians, like Dame Edna or something. Um, but when the Christians came, that you persecuted those people, right? Like the khunta, the hermaphrodite. Muslims always had fiqh specialty for transgender people. There was fiqh for those people. But now, they don't believe in their book anymore, so they want to force everybody to accept their idea of marriage. We've redefined marriage, and the whole world has to accept it. This is the ethnocentrism, ethnocentric nature of this civilization. It's a very arrogant civilization. I come from it, so, you know, it's a very arrogant civilization, and, and unfortunately also, there's a lot of arrogance in Muslims as well. Because they believe that their, uh, a lot of Muslims think their will should be imposed on everybody else. It's not our sharia. People can do what they want. You know. In a Muslim society that's ruled by Muslims with an agreement, a social contract with Muslims. And, and democracy even is what they call the tyranny of the majority. But when, when the majority of Muslims want certain laws, they say, oh, no, can't have that. Why not? Because we don't agree with it. But I thought you said democracy is what the majority want. Only if it's what we, we want, our majority wants. <laughs> anyway, these are the problems. So, so he says uh, about this. So that's the tahqiq, all right, of manat. It's determining, does the ruling apply in this specific situation? And this is what the Usuli scholar has to do, which is why Imam Qushayri said, the Usuli scholars are the generals of our civilization. They're the generals. Hum quwad al-ummah. Right? The faqih is, is, is like the administrator. The muhaddith is like the khazan. He's the one that protects the treasures. Right? And the qurra. They protect. But the, the Usuli is the general. He's the one that strategically determines what's the appropriate thing. Iqamat al-hudud takhtasu bil-imam to establish hudud. This is a qaida fiqhiyya. It's a legal principle in our tradition. 
Establishing penal punishments in Islam is specific to the ruler. The ruler can suspend penal punishments based on ishtihad. Like Omar during Amr Ramada, he stopped any uh, punishment for theft because there was so much widespread uh, suffering that people were stealing food to feed their children. So he saw that the hukum in this case is not to apply the hukum. That's tahqiq al-manat. Haqq al-manat. Because he said there's a man'ah. There's, there's something here to prevent the, the establishing the ruling, which is darura, necessity. People are doing this out of necessity, and necessity permits the impermissible. Even in Christianity, St. Thomas Aquinas said, theft is permissible if somebody's starving to death and nobody will, will feed them charitably. He's, in Christianity, Catholic Canaan law, that a person can steal food if nobody will feed them and they're starving. So they pass by a bakery, they break the window, they take the bread. They have a right. Because the right to have your life saved, that's a human right. If you see somebody drowning and you know how to swim, by sharia, it's an obligation to attempt to save them. It's a haq that that person has over you. So, he said, uh, So, Al-Khuruj, going out, the Baghiya, the Ta'ifa, is the one that goes against the Imam. He says, What appears to me, وَالْعِلْمُ عِنْدَ الْعَلِيمِ الْحَكِيمِ Allah knows best. And this is the mushtahid, is humility. He's saying, look, li, I'm an Usuri scholar. I've been studying this subject for over 50 years. Sheikh's 80 years old. When he was 20 years old, he was a mufti. Um, he, he memorized the 10 qira'at of the Qur'an. He studied tafsir. He's a master of the Arabic language. He studied all the hadith. I've heard him say on many occasions, I asked him about a hadith, he said, it's not in the six. It's not in the six books of hadith. Many times, I said, he said, laysa fi sitta. Laysa fi kutub sitta. So he, he's got, you know, it's like when you put something in mektab al-shamila, you know, and it goes, la yujadu. That's what it says. That's your bahth, right? Natijat al-bahth, la yujadu. Not there. He scans through his own uh, computer, right? It's not in the sitta. He mastered the, the tradition of usul. Uh, I was once with Ahmed Shugeri, and Ahmed had read a book about usul al-fiqh, and he mentioned something. I said, I don't think that's mashhur, that opinion. He said, but the, it was in the book. I said, well, there's lots of things in books that are dangerous. And, and I said, but let's ask the sheikh when he comes in. So he came in, and I asked Sheikh Abdullah, what do you... What do you say about this one of the fuqaha? He said this. He said, there's eight opinions on that subject. And then he gave all eight and he said, that's the weakest of the eight. You know? And he said, this is the... And that's the way he is. I mean, I've spent over 20 years with him. He's still... I'm amazed at his... I asked him not that long ago about uh, Kahlan and... Uh, and Himyar, you know, the, the, the Yemenis are Qahpani. You have Adnani, Qahpani. So the Yemenis are, are, are Qahpani from Yashjub, uh, Ibn Ya'rub, Ibn Qahpan. So they, they go back to this. But, but Qahpan splits into Himyar and Kahlan. They have two branches. So the Ghassasina, 
al Auswar Khazraj are from Kahlan, right? So I asked the Sheikh, I was asking him something about Kahlan and uh, Himyar. He quoted, because he memorizes a poem on Ansab, he quoted like a whole Qasida on the difference between Kahlan and Himyar. It was like a Masala Far'iya, yani fil Ansab. You know, that's his not. So when he says, what appears to me, it, we take it seriously. You know, because this is somebody who's studied all these things. He's got a genius in and of himself, but he has an encyclopedic knowledge of the tradition, and he's saying, here's what it appears to me. After I've looked at all the hadiths that command to obey the rulers and prohibit removing our hand of obedience from them, and some of them are muqayyida, so taqyid, you have muqayyid and, and mutlaq, something, you have am and khas. So you have things that are mutlaq, they're absolute, and then you have things that are muqayyid, like they constrain or determine, they're regulators of mutlaq. So, and this is in usul al-fiqh. So he says some of them are, uh, are qualified by ma'roof, that you do them, obey them in ma'roof. And, uh, and, 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 nahi fil munkar. So some of them say you can't obey them. La ta'atiri makhluqin fi al-khaliq. Most Muslims know that rule. You can't obey a ruler if it means disobeying the creator. Right? So he says, after I've looked at all of these, an ta'a laha Obedience has two meanings in our religion. Yadulu alayhi masiyaq. And the context of these hadiths indicate these two different meanings. And ma'an al-awwal, the first meaning, al-hakam. The first meaning is that you can't rebel against a ruler. And you cannot undermine the public order. Nidam. And, and I was saying it's very interesting that when these rebels talk about, like in Syria, when they talk about who they're fighting, they ha- they use the word in Arabic, nilam. The order. We're f- so what, what, what's the opposite of nilam? Fawda. Anarchy. Because they don't have any nilam. Because they've got all these different groups, each one fights the other, but they're fighting the order, the nilam. We don't, I don't like the nilam. I really don't. I don't like uh, Bashar or any of these things. But when people say, I, I believe in public order. Yes, I'm against fawda. Like the Jihadi poet said, anarchy is, will never help. People will never do well in anarchy. When you don't have good rulers, they'll never do well in anarchy. And then he said, and there's no benefit in having ignorant rulers because that will eventually lead to anarchy. So, وَهَذِهِ الَّتِي لَا يَجُوزَ الْخُرُوجَ عَلَيْهَا إِلَّا بَعْدْ خُرُوجَ الْإِمَامِ خُرُوجٍ لَا شَكَّ فِيهِ وَلَا رَيْبًا مِنَ الْإِسَامِ And you cannot go out of there uh, until the imam leaves Islam in a way that's absolutely certain. You have no doubt that he is a disbeliever. So, as if he's establishing prayer, and then even still, if you can't win, you don't go out. Muslims have been under uh, uh, disbelievers many, many times in history where they didn't fight them. 
because they knew that it was suicide. This is the obedience of the masses. So this is a negative type of obedience. It's not going against them or rebelling. And the second meaning is It's to obey the individual when he commands you to do an action that uh, is an obligation if the action is legitimate, if it's justified by sharia, and it's not permitted if it's, if it's prohibited by the sharia. But you still can't go against them in that case. And so his, this is his sheikh's contribution. He said the ibaras he's using, he's invented these mustarahat, and he's done this in several things because they're very useful. He calls one, to just isbiru ala adahum to be patient with their with their harm. That's called ta'atul ihtimal. And the other one is called ta'atul imtithal. So one is the obedience of patience, and the other is the obedience of implementing what they're telling you to implement when it's uh, accepted. And he said, this does not in any way contradict the, the legal uh, principle, which is w- very well known, that the imam, uh, in terms of how he treats his subjects or his citizens, is contingent upon common weal or benefit. Uh, it's, it's a principle that Imam Shafi'i rooted, according to Imam Suyuti, and it's based on the the, the ayah and the Qur'an, don't go near the wealth of the, of the orphan, and, uh, in, uh, except in a good way. So it's maslaha. That's the qa'ida. La tatasarraf fi mal al-yateem illa bi maslaha. So tasarraf al-imam manutun bin maslaha. Tasarraf al-imam fi al-ra'iyati manutun bin maslahati. It's based on that ayah. Huwa binaan ala hadhi al-ayah wa kadharika fi al-hadith وَمِنَ السُنَّةِ وَفِي الصَّحِيحِينَ إِنَّ مُتَفَقٌ عَلَيْهِ إمام البخاري and إمام مسلم ما من عبد استرعاه والله رعية فلم يحطها بنصيحة إلا ولم يجد رائحة الجنة No servant, slave, abd is given uh, the responsibility of looking after a people رعية and then he's not sincere with them in other words doesn't work for the common good Except that he will never, he won't smell lem, uh, lem. He, 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 he will not smell the ra'ihat al-jannah, the scent of paradise. Alhamdulillah. So, anyway, I, hopefully I've exhausted this subject, um, so people can understand this position from a traditional, uh, position and why we're against oppression but we're also against rebellion against oppressors if that rebellion is going to lead to greater uh, harm because it's, it's prohibited um, to do that. So people say, there's questions like, what do we do? What do we do? Well, that's a good question. Given the recent Supreme Court ruling on marriage and recent open letter by Riza Aslan, how do Muslims recognize individual civil rights and balance that against communal protection for immoralities? I haven't read, uh, I've kind of been out of touch because I wasn't, I was overseas. I haven't read. Riza Aslan 
whatever he said about uh, same-sex marriage, he does an amazing job on, on, uh, on television defending uh, Muslims generally. I mean, really. And so we should be very happy to have somebody like that who's as telegenic, who's as intelligent and as educated as that. He might make some mistakes in, in, in his understanding or his ishtihad. That's fine. His good, certainly in my estimation, in the public eye uh, in the United States outweighs any other considerations for me personally. I'm not going to support him in everything he does or everything he says, but overall, he's, he's a great good for our community to have somebody as articulate as that and also just pleasant, you know, even though he's firm and strong. I mean, Aslan, I think, means lion in uh, Persian. You know, he's like a lion sometimes. I mean, he just shuts them up, you know. Like, he'll ask these guys, are you listening to yourself? Did you hear what you just said? You know, because they're so stupid sometimes. They really are stupid people, some of these people. You just wonder how they got those jobs. Why are Muslims so oppressive to women? You know, okay, did you take the, you know, 700 million Muslim women and do a really serious survey about how they're doing? Yeah, why are Americans so oppressive to women? That's a good question, too. You know, why are men so oppressive to women? That's an even better question, right? But not all women are oppressed and not all men are oppressors, right? So, you know, and then also, like, who the hell are you to determine whether the Saudi women feel oppressed or not? Because a lot of these Saudi women, you know, well, they say, well, that's double consciousness. You know, they're just, they just don't know they're oppressed. Well, gee, that's interesting. <laughs> no, this, this is critical theory. They don't know they're oppressed. We have to teach them that they're oppressed. They have to understand that that black bag that they're wearing is oppressive. Well, you know what? You guys say that you shouldn't go out in the sun because it's harmful to the skin. Have you ever seen a 70-year-old Saudi woman's skin? It's like porcelain. There's no wrinkles, right? Seriously, right? No skin cancer in Saudi Arabia for those women in the hottest place in the world, right? And then, you know, they have different, there's different, Saudi's like four different cultures. You have Eastern, Western, uh, you have northern and southern. They're very different. The Hijazis are very different. Even amongst the Hijazis, you have the, the Bedouin Hijazis, you have the cosmopolitan Hijazis that, that come, many of them, their ancestors came from different places. They're very different. You know, you have some of the most educated women in the world are, are in Saudi Arabia. Seriously. And you should talk to some of them. They don't feel oppressed. Yes, there are some women that would like to drive. One of the things they never tell you is that in Saudi Arabia, Bedouin women are permitted to drive. They're actually permitted. There's women that drive in Saudi Arabia. And, and the government allows them to drive. The Bedouin women. Why? Because a Bedouin woman will kick your butt. You know, and they worry about the, the women driving on their own, getting pulled, forced aside the road, because there, there are a lot of uh, workers. I was, I was at a place where they had a rape on the house in Jeddah. A group of, of foreign workers literally raped uh, a 13-year-old girl. You know, so you've got a population that ha they have real serious uh, security considerations there. Also, dr driving is very dangerous. Now, Dr. Omar argues that if the women were allowed to drive, they would become better drivers. Right? 
So that, that's a case. But it's not like the Saudi government hasn't thought about giving women driver's licenses. You know, it's, it's an ongoing debate. But if that's your criteria for, you know, women's oppression in Saudi Arabia, that they can't drive, do you know? No. So for me, yeah, there's things I don't like about Saudi culture, but there's also things that I love about Saudi culture. There's things that I don't like about American culture, there's things I like about American culture. But to make this blanket statement, all Saudis are oppressive, all Saudis are evil, what is that? It's just pure arrogance. That's all it is. It's just total ethnocentric, Eurocentric, uh, Blanco-centric arrogance. That's all it is. We're better than you. It's as simple as that. Why? Well, because we are. You know, look how we treat our women. Look at Las Vegas. Look at all those naked women. Look at, they're free to expose their bodies. You guys put them in those bags, you know. I mean, even one of their comedians said, you know, he felt sorry for prostitutes in the West now because they used to be able to apply their wares with the way they dressed. He said, but now all our women dress like that. So they can't distinguish themselves. SubhanAllah. <laughs> Some people are having problems understanding Arabic words. My apologies. Uh, I, 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 I do apologize that. Sheikh Lim Bey's argument is absolutely brilliant and much needed in these times of fitna. The question is, how can we educate our public and communicate this to our ulama? I mean, that's actually what he's trying to do. He's trying to communicate it to the ulama. Because he is a scholar scholar. He's really not for the masses. I mean, people, when, when you hear him talk, he's just at a whole other level. You know, I mean, sometimes he, like, if you watch at the RIS when he, when I had an interview with him, I mean, I thought he was very clear for even a common person. But it's very difficult for him to do that because he works in a, you know, what uh, Edie Hirsch calls domain knowledge. You know, uh, in, in epistemology, in order for you to understand things, you have to have domain knowledge. So if, you, if you're having a discussion with a biologist and he uses terms like natural selection and randomness and mutations and, uh, you know, stimuli and, and uh, you know, the uh, Krebs cycle and things like that. If you don't have the domain knowledge from that science, you'll, you'll understand some things, but a lot is going to be lost on you. That's the way the Usuli scholars are. There, there's a whole set of references that they have. And our ulama generally wrote like that. Many of our ulama wrote for other ulama. They didn't write for common people, and that's why their books are difficult to get into, because you have to have the domain knowledge. So that's part of it. And then we have, what I'm trying to do now is take his knowledge and translate it so that people can understand it, so you can understand it. Because these, these unfortunately, these things, it used to be in the past, most people knew their place in Islam. If you weren't a scholar, you didn't talk about Islam. That's no longer the case. Now, Everybody's a alim, everybody's a, a usuli scholar, everybody's spent 50 years studying everything about the religion, and everybody can comment on it. So this is the age we're living in, so it's difficult to do that. So what are some of the steps uh, that we can start within our communities? Well, part of it is to recognize that education is the most important thing in our religion, you know, more than any other thing. Imam al-Bukhari, one of my favorite chapters, they say, you know, I mean, this might be apocryphal, but they do say that the titles of his 
his abwab that he got in dreams from the Prophet One of my favorite books, you know how you have blurbs? They call them endorsements. Um, you have blurbs that are on the back of books. Like, you know, I, when I did the Tahawiya, I had two audiences in mind. One were uh, Christians and the other were Muslims. Um, and that's why I have Nidham al-Aqubi, who's one of the most learned modern scholars. He's in Bahrain. He wrote a blurb for me. And then Dr. Rowan Williams wrote a blurb for me. Why? So that a Christian would see that, oh, Archbishop of Canterbury, that's interesting. Um, so people have... My, one of my favorite books is Ibn Abi Jamra's book, where his blurbs are all over 70 dreams that people had for him that the Prophet said, read Ibn Abi Jamra's commentary on my hadith because he understood what I meant. It's over 70 dreams. So at the back of the book is all blurbs from people that had dreams of the Prophet telling them to read his book, Bahjat al-Nufus, subhanAllah. And that's an amazing book, Bahjat al-Nufus. It's, it's one of the most amazing books. He was the teacher of Ibn al-Hajj. Uh, he was an Andalusian who ended up in Egypt. Um, great, great scholar. But um, uh, anyway, what was that? why did I say that? Education, yeah. So, you know, um, we have to educate people. It's, it's really important to, uh, you know, to learn our basic Islam. There are people now, what's that? Oh, thank you. Yeah, somebody got it. Um, Imam al-Bukhari, they say, got dreams about the titles. But one of the titles of his chapters is Bab al-Ilmi Qabla al-Qawli wal-Amal. The chapter of acquiring knowledge before you speak or do anything. So that pretty much wipes out most activists today. You know, we don't want to start where you should start in Darul Arqam. Medina doesn't happen until 13 years after intense study inside Darul Arqam. Uh, the Murabitun didn't. Uh, save Andalusia until they'd spent years in the ribats studying and doing tahajjud and preparing themselves. So nobody wants to do that work. They, they just want everything to get fixed without doing any of the preparation. And, and ignorance causes far more damage. I mean, even the Arabs say, عَدُوٌ عَاقًا وَلَا صَدِيقٌ جَاهِلٌ Give me an intelligent enemy and not a stupid friend, an ignorant friend. But I'd rather have an intelligent enemy. That, that's the proverb. I'd rather have an intelligent enemy. He'll harm you. Your ignorant friend will harm you, trying to benefit you. Whereas the ignorant, the intelligent enemy, at least you can work out if he's intelligent what he's going to do. How does one convince someone or even 
nice handwriting, but little small. How does uh, one convince someone or even know that the existing oppression will be the lesser of the two evils before their action is taken? Well, we have this thing called history, which is very, very important to study, right? Read the whisper of the blade and look at the history of revolutions, right? I mean, history will tell you, and that's why the Qur'an is two-thirds history. Two-thirds of the Qur'an is history. No, because humans just repeat themselves. Oh, but it'll be different this time. Well, that's also history because they always said that. It's going to be different this time. How do we balance oppression and justice and bring someone back to the middle path with our limited knowledge? Well, you know, oppression, first of all, is a relative term. You know, there's some degree of oppression, everybody. Like most of us are under that first category, that's the majority of Muslims today. There's some that are muqtasidun, there's very few. Right? I mean, the sabiqun are, you know, there are few from the first. Uh, there are many from the first, but few from the later. And there's a khilaf. Is that the first people or from the sahaba? From, right? Even kuntum khayra ummatin ukhrijat linnas. That, they say, was for the sahaba. Kuntum. Right? You were. That's for the sahaba. And, but even the ones that don't say, they said, you have to fulfill the shart, right? تأمرون بالمعروف وتنهون عن المنكر وتؤمنون بالله أمر بالمعروف نهي عن المنكر إيمان بالله. We should condemn injustice when we're capable, but for the alim, he does it with his tongue. For the the common person, he does it with his heart. Ibn Omar, when he saw something he couldn't change, and I learned this very early uh, from a Mauritanian scholar. If he couldn't change something, he used to, if he saw it, he would say, Allahumma innahu munkar ankarna. Oh Allah, this is a munkar and we reject it. And if we were able, we would change it. Now obviously, nowadays, you would have to say that almost everything you looked at. But choose your battles, you know, Syria, I mean, what's happened? Allahumma innahu munkar. Ankarna, you know, Palestine. If I could change it, I would change it. Really, I would change it. The best thing Muslims could do is educate people about the Palestinian issue. That's the best thing. Most people are ignorant. Most Americans, if they really knew what was happening, they would, they would, uh, they would change their opinion. But they don't know. They think that the Palestinians are all these evil terrorists, and unfortunately we have some people there confirming those stereotypes by a lot of their activities. Just because, you know, they're using strategies of power with utter weakness, which, which is not an intelligent thing to do in my estimation. I, I think they're really wrong. And also, a lot of their rhetoric is just wrong. I, I, I believe that, you know. But, I, you know, the Palestinians, like they're, for me, it's like ma'adurun. You know, you just leave the Palestinians. That, that's how I view Palestine. You just, I'm not going to judge those people. I'm not going to, even the ones that do the crazy things, I'm just not going to judge them because God knows their conditions. I mean, I'm not in Gaza, and I, and I don't want to make any judgments on the Palestinians, really. 
but people, you can drive people crazy. And when you drive people crazy, they can act like, you know, they're crazy because you've driven them that way. And the conditions, the social conditions in that country, the racism, an incredibly racist country. You know, it's, it's an apartheid country according to, uh, to uh, uh, Nelson Mandela. You know, and, and of all people, he would know what apartheid is, right? But he considered Israel to be an apartheid country. You know, it's, it's a state based on a racist doctrine. You know, so, I mean, democracy is for everybody, right? If you're going to have a democratic state, it's not just for one group as opposed to other groups. And certainly not all Jews are racist, and I would never say that, um, you know, I, I made a statement many, many years ago, and, uh, you know, it still haunts me to this day, but the I just didn't qualify it. You know, some Jews are racist, just like some Muslims are racist, you know, but there are many Jews committed to social justice. There's a lot of Jews that um, work in the United States for Palestinian rights, you know, Jews for peace. There are many good organizations, and there are many good Jews among them. And, that, and that's my position. I don't like to judge groups. I don't like to lump everybody into these. This is one of the problems with a lot of modern Muslim mentality. Kuffar. They're all kuffar. You know, what's interesting about Muslims, modern Muslims, yusannif al-Muslimin wa yu'ammam al-kuffar. Wal quran yusannif al-kuffar wa yu'ammam al-Muslimin. Huh? Like the Quran clearly differentiates between different types of, of non-believers. Like It's fine. Those who don't fight you in your religion, right? Be good towards them, show them bir. And, and, and tuqsitu ilayhim, even share your wealth with them. Allah says that in the Quran. Right? But with the Muslim, innaman mu'minuna ikhwa, all the believers, are, but Muslim, yusannif al-Muslimin, wa yu'ammim al-kufar. Kullahum kufar, ya akhi. Kullahum kufar. You know, Allah, Allah, Allah yudamiruhum, Allah yu'attim awladuhum, wa yu'armil nisa'uhum, Allahum haz, you know, all these du'as they make, you know. I mean, like I used to listen to the du'a in Ramadan, those long du'as, and they're all doing those, you know, make their children orphans and make their women widows. And I'm thinking, you've been doing this for a long time and nothing's changed. Why don't you, Allahumma, yani, ahdihim, Allahumma, Allahumma, ahdihim, you know, why not ask for their guidance? There's a beautiful hadith in Sahih Bukhari, one of my favorite hadith. Uh, the Prophet sent this group to Dos, one of the tribes of Yemen. And they came back and they said, Ya Rasulullah, Dos, you know, inna dosa qad abat wa kafarat. You know, they, they rejected Islam and disbelieved. Fad'u alayhim. Imprecate against them. Make a dua against them. So, tawalla al-qibla. The Prophet turned to the qibla wa rafa'a yadayh. And people thought they, that he was going to call, make a dua against them. And he said, Allahumma ahdi dawsan wa bihim. Oh Allah, guide dawsan and bring them to me. And they came, and in that waft was Abu Huraira. You know, and they became Muslim. 
You know, he, he, didn't, he didn't make dua. He rarely made dua. He made dua a few times against people, but his overall thing was rahmah for people. But if there was no rahmah in the people, you know, then, then obviously, man la yarham la yurham. Anyway, so. For some people, you know, are the rights of individuals and communities not being taken away by, by injustice of tyrants? Um, is there justice only with God in the hereafter? For some people, their justice is only with God in the hereafter. That's just a fact of life. And that's why we believe in Yom Qiyamah. You know, no, every dog gets his day. Even the animals get justice on Yom Qiyamah. Every dog gets his day. That's a proverb in English. And that's taken from a spiritual reality. Every dog gets its day. Even the animals will have their justice on Yom Qiyamah. From other animals as well as from humans. So even animals that oppressed other animals. Alhamdulillah. I am being informed that time is up. But time could be down, you know, if you think about it. Allah yubarak fikum subhanaka wa bihamdika ashadu an la ilaha illa anta astaghfiruka wa atubu ilayk. Alhamdulillah. Jazakumullah khairan. Assalamu alaikum.